Hey there, my name is Valentin Umbach, and you're listening to Analytics Anonymous, the show where I talk with analytics leaders and practitioners about the challenge of making better decisions with data. In this episode, I'm talking with David Jayatilika, who's Chief Product and Strategy Officer at Avora. Avora offers anomaly detection and root cause analysis for business metrics. And uh, David is also a prolific contributor to the analytics community. Um, he has his own Substack at davidsj.substack.com. I believe that's right. And awesome. I can only recommend everybody to subscribe. Uh, uh, super interesting posts. Also, um, he goes on podcasts a lot. And I won't even call you a regular on the analytics engineering podcast uh, um, with the folks over at DBT Labs, where I've heard you at least two times. So yeah, I'm super excited to have you on the show today, David. Thanks, Valentin. I'm really glad to be here and speak about data stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So actually, I forgot to mention the topic that uh, that we want to talk about today. It's about scoping analytics work. But before we get into that topic, I would um, love to hear a bit more about you. Um, maybe you can tell me a bit about what you do at Avora and, and the path that brought you there. Sure. So at Avora, I'm in charge of taking us in a new direction as a company like moving more towards um, on data stack and integrating with things like dbt other metrics layers and setting out a vision and a strategy uh it that that's that's the the bulk of my role obviously i'm spending a lot of time at the moment doing fundraising talking to a lot of vcs and other investors about uh, our seed round that we're trying to close um that's that's most of my role at the moment um and you know thinking about things like how do we how do we enable customers to get value from avora uh, and how can we get that faster and yeah that's my role how did i get there so i've been a data practitioner for the majority of my career 12 years or so now um different companies leading different types of data team from pricing analytics to more general BI teams. And then in my latter, latter couple of roles, looking after all of data as an organization. Um, and that's kind of how it's led me to be a, a data founder because I, you know, I, I understand the problem space very well. I've been a customer of Aurora a couple of times, so I know what kind of problems they solve and why it's valuable having paid for it. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much how I've got to where I am. Great, thanks. I feel that's kind of a, a common pattern in the past few years that a lot of people um, started starting their own companies, founding you know tools in the data uh, ecosystem that basically build on on the experience they made. You know, either working in in some of the big tech companies or maybe you know building out uh, teams in smaller companies and just always <laughs> facing the same challenges and then trying to, to come up with solutions for that. Yeah, it's because you have this kind of dilemma of, oh, I can just go from company to company solving the data stack and getting them to value. And that's great. It's actually really rewarding. I've enjoyed it. I wouldn't even rule out, rule out doing it again. But you do it one company at a time and it's slow going. And you wonder if, you, given the number of times you've done it, can you automate part of this workflow? And that's that's what we've all gone out and done, you know, whether that's data catalogs, data observability, BI tools, uh, what I'm doing, which is business observability and data apps. You know, you, everyone everyone's seeing parts that they think they, they could potentially automate 
and therefore solve for many companies rather than doing it one at a time. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. It's it's an exciting time to work in this field. I think you know whether you're building tools or or uh, you just get get to use all of these new tools that that are out there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, David, um, let's um, let's get into the topic for today: scoping, analytics, and data work. And so, why is it so hard to to plan and scope a project in in this field? So, um, let me maybe um, start with with a with a question that I typically have. And so, I've I've led analytics teams in three different companies, and um, one of the questions that I always ask myself and the team is um, when we when we work with tickets uh, and tasks, um, do we want to uh, or do we need to estimate the effort and the time that we that we take for that? So it's it's a common thing for software teams, right? They they always have these uh, t-shirt size or whatever way of estimating tickets. And you wrote about that recently also. Um, how, how, how do you see that? Do you have you done that in the past? If, if not, why not? Yeah, so I definitely have done t-shirt sizing. I I I very rarely go beyond you know tiny medium and large that's kind of the way i'd um, look at it like tiny would be something very easy like giving someone access to something so, you know very very quick mm. a task you know will take 15 minutes or so um and then medium is where oh okay i i, I kind of really understand what i need to do to solve this we're not talking about building loads of stuff but we need to do something that's you know, not insignificant, maybe half a day to a day's work. And then the bigger ones, they're the ones that are really hard <laughs> because you're thinking, oh, this is going to take weeks to build. I don't know if we even... So with data, you're always relying on some other generator of the data, whether that's an engineering team or some third-party application. And until you start delving into those sources, you don't know what you've got <laughs> to work with. And I think that's partly why it takes so long or can sometimes it can be really quick because you've got lucky and the, the say an engineering team, oh yeah, we've built really nice um, events and they follow a standard structure and here you go. You can just use them there in S3 already. You know, sometimes you get lucky and that's happened to me a few times and you don't, it, it takes a lot less time than you thought, but sometimes it's awful. And like, oh, we haven't built any tracking. We need to go and build tracking too. <laughs> you then get blocked because you're waiting for them to do work. And then you have to iterate because they've done it exactly the way you, they need to. And then when they deliver, it's not exactly how you expected and you have to adapt. That's why it takes, it's so unpredictable how long those more deeper pieces of work will take. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree. And I mean, this would also, um, I think this is true for all all types of data products. And I see data products really as everything that we deliver uh, with data. Yes. So this can be, it can be some kind of model. It can be a, a dashboard. It can also be a one-off analysis. I also see that as a data product that should uh, adhere to some standards. Even let's say you an, an analysis where you want to understand uh, certain patterns in the data, want to explain something it's so hard to estimate how much time there's so much exploration uh, going into that. Um, yeah, as you said, you have to look at the data first, what data is available, how does that data look uh, to, before you can even start to, to estimate the effort. Um, I mean, is this something, so would you recommend, like this, this, this approach that you, that you explained is small, medium, large, basically, is that something that you found useful um, in, in your work? 
I think it is useful because when you're doing prioritization, um, there, it's, it's, this, it's, it's a concept similar to OKRs. And then if you've heard of rocks and pebbles, it, rocks and pebbles is useful because it kind of explains why you should do it. Because when you think something is a big piece of work and you know you really need to do it, you'll stick that in first because you need to be able to have the capacity to do it. And then when you think things are smaller and can fit around it, then you can prioritize those into the same time as well and same for sand but you you need to know what's big because if you take too many big things on at a time you won't deliver them on time so that's why even if you just had two sizes it would still be hmm. worthwhile you know yeah. this is going to be big this is not you know that would be fine got it got it but you shouldn't probably you shouldn't try to estimate let's say i'm going to need two days or five days or something like that at the beginning. I'm not sure there's a huge amount of value in it because as soon as you estimate it, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you brought up one point before um, that might happen if you, once you start with a project, you look at the data that you, that you need, that you have, and you realize we don't have the right data. <laughs> so um, basically it always like, it, it really should start with collecting the data, right? But um, I think there's this dilemma that you also wrote about recently when at the point when you when you want to use the data, that's um, sometimes that is the point when you think about what kind of data you actually need. But the point when you start tracking the data is made maybe much earlier. Yeah. So uh, how, do you, how do you approach this whole um, issue of tracking, deciding what kind of data you, you start tracking, collecting um, when you maybe don't have all of the use cases uh, already in mind? So I, I, I feel like this is about context. So one of the tools I really like at the moment is called Avo. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, you know, Steph was on a panel with me on Coalesce last year. And it's actually one of those products that's a bit hard to get your head around. And then once you finally get your head around it, it's like, wow, this is amazing. This is going to be so valuable. And the reason I say that is because it makes you think about data and what you need in data when you make changes to applications. So a product manager will plan a change. And when they're doing that change, they decide, oh, I'm going to make a new event or I'm going to change an event. What should be in this event? And, and it, at, at that point, before the engineering is done, the data people can get involved and say, oh, what are you looking to track after this? Well, you want to track this metric. Well, we need to then have this data. I want to split this by these dimensions. Well, then you need to add these things to the event as well. Otherwise, we're going to have to do, you know, reverse engineering or not even be able to fill that fill those gaps in. And it's that whole. It's almost it's a it's a concept that's coming in as well through this idea of data contracts. But in some ways, this is better because you're just working together from the outset to make sure you get what you need, and then the contract is almost enforced throughout the process. Um, that's, I feel like a much more ideal way of working than, um, <laughs> after the fact, trying to figure out what you've got or even just, um, maybe feeding in requirements or going to the standups of the, of the team that's building the data. It's like, you're going to miss things doing that and you're not going to see things exactly as they will be built this way. You know, the structure of the data you're getting right out the box straight away, you can right. plan for it. It will help with planning for a start. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great that you mentioned this. I've I've heard of Avo, of course, before, and I 
Uh, I know Steph also has a has her own podcast, which uh, I also really like, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, but I haven't used the tool. And um, interested now, now another reason to to take a look at it, to be honest. But um, what what I also hear here a bit is about um, you need to work together with the product managers, with maybe with the engineers who are implementing these features from the very beginning of you know of that project um, to make sure that it's tracked in the right way. So um, to me, this is also one of the benefits that, uh, it's kind of a side note here, but um, having um, the analytics people, maybe the data analysts work very closely, maybe even being embedded in the product teams where they are able to, you know, um, they're part of the planning of, you know, of a new feature, let's say. So it's it's not about, you're not in this reactive mode where basically, um, yeah, the product manager has a question and then comes to you and then you realize, well, we don't have the data for it. But um, if you've been in the room the whole time, um, you have a much better chance of making sure that that, that yeah. doesn't happen. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is kind of leads back into these concepts of embedding um, and data team structures. I think the centralized structure makes this really hard being in that conversation. And I think if you have full decentralized, it becomes difficult, problematic because nothing's ever in the standard format or standard way of doing anything. So some kind of hybrid of the two feels like the best approach. Like someone wrote an article about this recently, had a, a bunch of diagrams. I think it was Mikhail Dengso. Mm -hmm. And um, the, middle, uh, the middle was the hybrid way. And the only disadvantage it had was, oh, it could be difficult for data team managers. I'm like, well, I'm sorry, that's just the job. You're going to have to balance it. <laughs> yeah, totally, fully agree with you here. This is also, I think it's it, it's a lot of people see that now that this is the, this is the best way to go. It's um, the way that I've also done it in the past at, you know, um, I've worked at Lavu, uh, which is a dating app out of Germany where we had a bigger analytics team um, and we had it exactly in this this kind of setup um, a smaller centralized team for everything you know from let's say building the data platform the the data models and um, you know self-service centralized reporting let's say that that's available for the whole company but everything for you know the analysts that would uh, work on some of the strategic analysis understanding uh, user behavior, informing, you know, product decisions, uh, analyzing A-B tests and so on, they will be embedded in the product teams. Right. Uh, and did you um, did you build the recommender system? <laughs> so, no, that, that wasn't built by our team. Um, so there was a kind of a separation between the analytics team, which is, uh, um, so I would make the split at our um, customers were internal business users. Uh, yeah. And then we had a data science team or machine learning uh, team, which mainly consists of machine learning engineers and data engineers, which were building the, the user-facing um, yeah, data products, uh, which mainly to uh, the recommender system, which is obviously uh, very important in a dating app, but um, also anti-spam, which is unfortunately also very important. <laughs> yeah, it's very similar to how we were structured at List, actually. We had, oh yeah, my, my teams that I directly managed were mostly internally focused and then we had a, a wider data science community where we had those data scientists focused on building our search and recommendation systems for products yeah so we would be involved of course for example in any kind of um if we want to um 
change some features of the recommender system. Maybe we would do some testing around that. Maybe we would do some exploration. So we would do we would contribute analysis. We would analyze some you know tests uh, that that yeah. we carried out, but um, we wouldn't build kind of the production system. So that that was um, those were machine learning engineers sitting in the product teams also. Yeah. 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 I think that's a yeah. It seems I've I've heard that several times now that this seems to be a common setup, and I kind of make the split between what the like what the customers or or the, the users of of our products are if those are internal um, or or kind of the end user um, which just also has very different requirements on you know the um, the the like the the scalability the reliability um, of of the, the products that we build. I mean, our, you know, internal dashboards also need to need to run reliably, but it's it's different if there are maybe a hundred people exit, like like using it per day, or if it's uh, if it's a million people, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the difference for SLAs is, is uh, huge. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. So kind of the recommender system, if that goes down even for five minutes, we have, we have we're in trouble, but um, if the dashboard is down for five minutes, it's, um, yeah, you don't usually need to wake up in the middle of the night for that. Yeah. We talked about tracking. Um, it's good to kind of be there from the beginning. I think you often still end up in the situation that as, when you're going over over a longer time, you, you end up with more and more events. Uh, some of them are not being used anymore. And I think it's also about you have to kind of continuously manage and maybe clean up and um, make sure that you're not just having a huge mess of data in the end of things yeah. that that are not useful anymore and, and and another consideration here is also the whole like um, you know privacy uh, protection that uh, you know GDPR and so on that that at least in Europe is a really important consideration um, you shouldn't yeah, everything that you track, you need to make sure you're not um, storing, you know, critical, sensitive, sensitive, sensitive information about your users in in a way that's that's not um, not appropriate. So I think that's the balance, kind of. You want to track as much as possible. Um, as a as an analyst, as a data person, you're always happy to have uh, the data, but um, yeah, it can also get get too much at some point. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I've had that problem with PII before, and I've even built things like dbt macros, which delete PII or you know, PII data from you know uh, like unstructured data in Snowflake and things like that. That I'd run as a run operation after different dbt jobs to to get rid of. Um, you know, my my rule of a data warehouse was no PII in here, please. That that's more or less the rule. Yeah, I think that's a very good rule to have. Um, I mean, there, there are some use cases, uh, legitimate use cases where PII is needed, I think, in, for example, customer support or um, or some marketing use cases where you need, let's say, the email address or something like that. But those should really live in a, in a different, in a separate world as much as possible, I think. Yeah, usually those ops systems or CRM systems have their own data stores for the PII part, and then you're just sending them you know, uh, IDs, like user IDs or something for them to then look up the email when they need to, only at the point at which they need to interact with that person. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I also, you know, the, the, the other point you made as well about not having this giant mess of data, I, I've experienced that. So when I migrated list to DBT from uh, DBT and Snowflake from Redshift and some custom Python scripts, we, we only had about 70 models 
to start with and half of those were just in the you know, almost like the creation of sources um but by the time i left we were at about 500 you know you're talking about what we built in two years that kind of uplift and you see this at other companies like monzo in the uk are famous for having a three three i think three to five thousand model dbt repo and it you know the compile time for them was like some major problem before dbt released 0.2 version 0.21 or something like that (laughs) that's interesting that you bring this up so is 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 that kind of a kind of a quality a performance metric you would like how would you look at the for example the just the volume the number of of dbt models uh, um see i i so i i would think now with monzo i believe that's because they they went very heavily towards microservice and each microservice emits an event and therefore each event at least is the, has one dbt model right that's it right so that's probably why they have such a huge huge number whereas at list like we only we we, we probably didn't have more than 40 or 50 uh, raw events. Hmm. So the fact that we got to 500 means we've done a lot of transformation, right. you know, to build things, to, to provide for use cases like LTV and hmm. some slowly changing dimension type analysis, like on product status and hmm. things like that. Um, and those things just end up building huge chains of models to support them. Um, I think I, one of the things I wish DBT had was like a, a command which is like DBT similar. That's the way where, where I put it is where you'd give it an array of models or even not, and it just tell me which models are very similar to which <laughs> other ones. And it could be very very crude to start with. Be like, well, which models all depend on the same input models? Like, are, is this actually does do you need these models that all have the same inputs? Could you have one instead of three? Right. You know that kind of thing, and especially. If you went a bit deeper and you said, well, these all have the same input models and they all group by the same fields, like that really should just be one model. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's, I think that's a really interesting point. It's it's also kind of a a, a very common thing that I've, that I've seen in, in the different companies I've worked at that, you know, the same models or the same calculations, the same metrics, that's, let's say, are implemented several times in slightly different ways for different use cases. And this is something to manage this. I think DBT makes this a lot easier to, to manage this, to get an overview, to understand the lineage and whatever, but it doesn't really uh, absolve you of the responsibility to to kind of... Um, so you still have to have, to, have, to have the discipline to, um, yeah, to keep it everything aligned and 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 do not create these um, yeah diverging um models that can end up contradicting each other if you you know look at different dashboards or reports let's say yeah i mean part of me has a kind of like a, a dream where you've got this amazing ide which could like, as you're building your model and it knows what refs that you've got could start suggesting oh this is going to be very similar to this other existing model could you just edit this model instead? You know, that would be amazing and yeah. would reduce that so much. But yeah, we're probably a couple of years away from that at least. There's so is, is that a is that a feature request for DBT or is that is that a new like uh, startup idea that someone can take? I'm sure like it could be like um a small tool, right? That right. You know, someone could add. But I think 
I, I personally think that could also be part of DPT core, like that kind of. I feel like there's there's now almost kind of a new wave of uh, of tools and startups that are building on top of DBT that are really, yeah. you know, benefiting from the popularity that that DBT has and and kind of what it enables uh, um, teams to do. So, uh, um, is that's that's something that I find exciting. I mean, obviously, there's that has been happened with like the the whole. Um, you know, uh, success of the cloud data warehouse that alone has enabled a whole like new new uh, suite of tools. But DBT in particular is uh, again opening up new new possibilities here. Yeah, I, and I feel like the the advent of the cloud data warehouses and and things like Snowflake and BigQuery in particular, I feel like that's allowed people to go bigger and faster. But it it didn't deal with the mess, if you know what I mean. It didn't deal with the disparate ways people used to deal with data and the brokenness of how that used to be managed. Um, in some ways, it possibly made it worse because you, you've got way more that you can do and it's just money. It's not going to break your system. It's just going to cost you more. Um, the, the, and, and I think DBT's probably had a more profound impact. And that's why you've got things now like DuckDB, which runs on your laptop that could mm -hmm. process quite a lot of data, way more than SQL Server back in back in the old days. And but you can use DBT with it and still get all those benefits of the analytics engineering workflow. Um, is this is this still big data? <laughs> no, so I interestingly joked uh, on Twitter that oh what's my new definition for big data is if it's too big for DuckDB. <laughs> <laughs> so but that you know, someone ran a billion, greater than billion row data on their laptop. Mm. So you know, I think, you know, you're taking. I I, I don't know. Big big data is a, a horrible term that you know is, belongs. I think belongs to that Hadoop era, which we can now shut the door on and say goodbye to. Yeah, I, I I had my experiences with Hadoop. We migrated from Hadoop to BigQuery um, back at at Lavu, that dating app, and yeah, yeah. never never looked back. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm just uh, one one other thought about this whole you know ecosystem around DBT. I'm I'm excited about, for example, um, uh, consumption tools that um, you know that leverage the all of the metadata that exists uh, in DBT the documentation, the lineage, and so on. Um, so I don't know if you've used. I haven't used it, but I I want to try it out. Uh, something like Light Dash uh, BI tool yeah. where. They, I think they make use of that metadata that you can surface it in, in the BI tool. Uh, maybe even, I think they're even integrating the, this metrics layer, which I also haven't tried out, to be honest, you know? Yeah, from, yeah. From so Lightdash I'm very familiar with because um, I've deployed them at one company that I've helped. Um, but also I'm an investor there, but okay. I know their founders very, very well. A really, really great team, and I think they were the first BI tool to sit on DBT. And it, between them and Metricule back, at, you know, which is now so it feels like a lifetime ago, but it was actually probably only a year or so ago. Like the first, um, the first tools to come up with an extension to DBT to have a metrics layer. So there, there's was different, and it's still in. You can still use it today. Where you define joins in uh, like a docs YAML mm. file of, from your tables and define metrics there as well. And so I, that's that is a yeah, it's definitely a really interesting tool to use, and it definitely saves time because all you do 
is build your DBT repository to a very high standard, well documented, define the joins, and then sit like that on top and it works. Mm. And, it, and that's what's amazing about it. You're not having to find things in two different places like you do with Looker and DBT working together. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. One more. One more reason I, I got to try this out soon. <laughs> um, I think that links back to your point about the impact of DBT. DBT has allowed for this kind of higher level of data maturity hmm. in inside the data community. Admittedly, not everywhere, right? I mean, I still come across companies um, when we're talking to prospects who maybe have Looker and BigQuery, but they've never even heard of DBT. Uh, you know, that's happened to me recently. And it does show that there's still a bit of this chasm right, that we've got to jump across where more people are using things like DBT because I'd, I'd love us to be in a place where people have, lots of people have got DBT, lots of people implement metrics layers, and then you can just have these standardized consumption tools that are cheap and easy to use. But it's just, I, you know, from experience, we're not there yet. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You just mentioned that chasm, and I think that was one of your most recent uh, um, yeah. blog posts or newsletters uh, at your Substack. Um, and one of one of the things that um, that you wrote about there, which I found really interesting, is um, the and it links to this to this discussion about the metadata that we just had. Is this context um, that you know? maybe the analyst has in their mind to understand. So where's the data coming from? What is it? How is it being generated? Um, how is it potentially related to other other data points, other um, you know findings that existed before? Um, and this is such an important part of, you know, often, let's say, creating an analysis. Um, and uh, this often, yeah, as, as, as you wrote in, in, in your blog, is. Um, It's kind of it lives, for example, in the head of the analyst. Yeah, it's it's hard to, um, it's it's not linked to the to the to the data in most in most cases. Um, yeah. Yeah. How, how how do you view this? What's the solution here, maybe? So um, it's interesting, actually. Someone um, someone actually replied. I think it was David Gasquez actually replied to that thread about when I posted that article. And um, I'm just looking at it now. He, he he asked me to go into depth on on that particular piece. Yeah, and um, it was it was interesting. So I've been a Monte Carlo customer before, and um, when I was at List, and Monte Carlo is one of those tools that it's a data observability platform, but it also ventures into things like uh, catalog and metadata management as well. And I think gradually they will do more and more of that. And one of the things I was working with their product team on was having people like data owners defined who therefore own the metadata about any data that's in their domain and that that kind of thing. And um, I think I feel like that's a, that's the start hmm. of how you deal with that problem with having where you, all the metadata is in someone's mind rather than in any useful place. Sure. DBT and analytics engineering generates a lot of metadata, much more than we've ever had, but it still lacks a lot of context because it's pure, it's quite purely engineering metadata at the moment. Right. So if you if you think about what does this thing mean or uh, what's the value of this thing or how does this relate to some concept in business, that's those are quite subjective and not engineering pieces of metadata. And yeah. 
that usually gets answered by a human or someone who made the data or someone who uses the data and understands what it means. And so that that I think typically that should be a, that that's what who I'd call a data owner. Now the problem with that is if you currently whenever you want to know something like that is you know especially before COVID you'd go and walk up to the data owner and ask them a question, and they get asked the same question over and over again, and it's wasteful. You know you, that 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 conversation should be you know codified somewhere. Now, I feel like that should be in a metadata management platform, whether that's something like Monte Carlo, whether that's something like Atlan or Select Star or Sokoda, like any of these mm. tools. You know, I, I could imagine a really nice workflow like in Slack where you do slash, you know, metadata tool name, and it comes up with, well, here's all the stuff in the catalog that we've got. Right. And here's this thing. Okay, well, what what have we got stored against it? in terms of information and then you may that could be the end right oh i found the question someone else has already asked the data owner that answers my question or this is the thread that i need to ask a bit more information on someone's already asked the question i've got a related question i'm going to join that thread add extra information uh, extra questions that i want to ask and get the get the information from the data owner or i've got a new question entirely and but when that happens it's it gets codified because it's it goes back and forth between the the medium by which you ask the question and the platform which manages the metadata, and I think it could do things as well where, when you've got answered questions, you probably won't have that many for every data source, but as you go through time, it can kind of self audit. It can say, well, it's been three months. Is this answer still true? Hmm. And so every three months or something, a data owner will be asked, these are the answers to these questions that you've given are they still valid? And, you know, it could be yes to everything. And most of the time it would be yes to everything. And then occasionally, like, oh, no, I've changed the definition of this piece of data. These questions are now invalid. Yeah, <laughs> They could actually be proactive as well and say, this now means this. And then the people who answered, asked those questions will be told. You know, it's it could, have, it could be a much nicer workflow. Yeah. And I think that's, Someone will build that, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that idea about how I understand this kind of, let's say, some insight, some, uh, some, something that you found out about the data it has an expiry date potentially. You know, you don't. Yeah. It's 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 not. You can't assume that um, that this will be true forever. It's it's important to store it somewhere. It's important to make it easily retrievable. I think that's the one thing. And the other thing is um, also it uh, it. it make it expire, you know, or have it been checked. So I really like this idea. And, you know, when you talk about metadata, you said it's not only the, let's say, kind of the, the technical side of it, the, you know, let's say the lineage, um, how it's being tracked. It's, it's also the context, as you mentioned, things like uh, what you also mentioned in your in your article, things like seasonality, for example, uh, typical drivers of change. So yeah. those are things that the analysts, they will know about this because they've looked at this before. They had to find this out once. And um, I'm thinking about like a typical example from, from my experience as looking at subscription revenues in, a, in, a, in an app um, where you would have, um, let's say, a spike every uh, the 28th day of a month because... Um, What happens, let's say Google Play, they roll up um, in February, they roll up all of the renewals for the remaining days into the 28th, and they will continue to do that for the rest of the year. So everything that has been rolled up to the 28th day once 
will then renew on the 28th also of March and April and so on. So you need to understand this kind of pattern. Otherwise, you're confused every every month again, like why do we have a spike in in subscription revenue today? <laughs> um, and you're starting some some investigation and, yeah. and so on. Yeah. yeah. So this is the kind of, it, it seems trivial, but these are the things that um, really can keep your analytics team busy. Uh, um, it, the same kind of questions because someone else um, hasn't had this, hasn't had seen this before. Yeah. Um, and to have this easily retrievable, that would be really, really nice. Yeah. And there's even things like just outages that you've had in the past. Like, exactly. Oh, why do we have such a low amount of data here? It's, oh, well, we broke our tracking somewhere for this last three days. And that's why when you go back and look at the past, it looks really weird, but that's why. And it's, that should be stored. And that, that kind of metadata, because it's metadata at the time, you never even need to check if it's expired because it'll always be true. You know, yeah. it's about that time. That is something that, I mean, um, just a little anecdote, what we did uh, in, in the, you know, in the past, um, where we manually kept this, put this kind of metadata, for example, about outages, um, also about some, you know, about product releases um, in just in a Google sheet, which we were would then ingest to, um, you know, to BigQuery and make it available in all, you know, every place where we would show metrics in a dashboard. You could just kind of also put that as an overlay to see, um, okay, on that date we had, uh, Either we had a release of, of a new version, um, we had some changes, some technical changes, for example, that we that we keep track of, and or some outages or some other events, some unusual events, let's say. So it's easy to at least visualize it together with the data. That was a very manual process, but um, definitely helpful for us. Yeah, definitely. that sounds really interesting. Let's get back just a little bit to to the initial question of you know um, what what makes it so hard to. Uh, you know, to, to scope the, the work in the beginning. And uh, I think one aspect is also the, you know, the follow-up question. Let's say you have a, you have a ticket for, for some building some dashboard or analysis. Everything is done. It's reviewed. It's released. And then there are some follow-up uh, questions. Up to what point do you, uh, do you keep that with that original ticket, for example, and it's still just never done? Or like, when do you start? Okay, that's a new task, for example. <laughs> So I, I wrote a post about this actually. This this point, but then I called it. I think it was this point would be the last question. <laughs> but yeah, I've been through this so many times. And what I learned to do, especially as an analytics engineer, is when you're building the model to enable the answering of this question, like you should make that model as powerful as you can to answer many similar questions and to allow drill down at different levels. Now I think. When, when the follow-up questions fit into that model, that's fine for it to stay in the original ticket. And actually, to be honest, when you've built the model to be that powerful, they often don't come with the follow-up questions because they see in Looker or wherever else or Lightdash, oh, I've got all these dimensions to split by. I can do this myself. And they just happily go away and do that. And, and usually what you find is They'll, they'll go away and play for a few days and then they'll come back with some crazily complex thing they built and then they want some validation on it. And that's really great. That's actually really rewarding rather than just, oh, can I add this, can I add this, can I add this? Um, uh, but then typically what will happen is they'll say, oh, I want this other completely separate thing as well. And that requires com complete 
a complete rework of what you've done. Not yeah. maybe, or at least even at least joining in some new source and then dealing with incrementality or or whatever again. So actually a fresh piece of engineering. And I think that's where you say, actually, this is a bigger ticket. We need to come back to it and reprioritize. Um, that doesn't mean you won't do it immediately. You know, often you're working on something because it is the top priority. So if they've come again and said, I need this extra thing, you just make a new ticket and work on it immediately. It's just um acknowledging that actually this is a new this is really a new piece of work that you've started or or true truly additional increment on what you built before yeah exactly it's just it's related to it so there's there's the two things the infamous the quick question that the stakeholder sends over slack and then there's the quick follow-up question <laughs> and they're both like uh yeah, the, that's what the analyst uh dreams about when they have nightmares i think <laughs> yeah Yeah, but yeah, it's a, that's a that's a good uh, good approach. Uh, I, I I think um, kind of over deliver over over engineer because you anticipate um, you anticipate the the follow up questions. It it also makes me think a little bit about um, the way you you said it. So we give a lot of data and you know make it explorable, make it like very um, you know easy for for the stakeholder to work with and. And what might result out of that is that they want even more. <laughs> so it's kind of the self-reinforcing circle where um, this this idea that let's say, in, in my mind, so self-service, self-service, big uh, buzzword. You know, you give self-service and you solve everything. The stakeholders will will not bother you anymore. They will solve everything by themselves. You can focus on something else. I think the more self-service, the more data you you make available, the more questions you will also have, which is a good thing. I, actually, I don't think the the, the The goal of self-service should be that that your your data team doesn't have any any more work, basically. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's like it's like this con. It, it's really interesting, and I one of the things that I think about is when I first did that migration list from Richard to Snowflake, I was very careful about optimizing it, and and I found at the end, Snowflake was maybe the way I'd optimize it actually made it very slightly cheaper. Than, than Redshift. But by the time I left less, the Snowflake cost had quadrupled. And why why is that? It wasn't because we'd become less efficient. It's because people were just doing so much more because it would work. Because they had a tool that was easy to use and expand upon, they just did more and more things with it. They had more questions of data, they stored more data, and, it, and that just results in more. Um, so I, I totally agree. If you do something well and it works, people just want to do more stuff. <laughs> yeah. This is why I'm not afraid of automation. You know, if you if you automate something, that's not going to mean less work. It will just mean more people with more hunger want want to do ten times or a hundred times what they used to do. That's that's all that will happen. Yeah, and ultimately, that's a good thing. I think that's our yeah. goal. We want to make our our organizations more data driven. They like want to whatever. The mission is, but it's always something close to, you know, uh, supporting uh, better decision making, giving like more like data should be should be more accessible and more part of the daily work. I think that's that's always yeah. the goal. Um, David, I think um, we should slowly come towards towards the end of our conversation yeah. here. And um, before we uh, we end this, I would like to talk about another topic. Um, so I mentioned before you 
you're yourself very active in um, you know the whole community you're, you're a lot on twitter and um, you're on podcasts you have your Substack. i'd be really curious to hear a bit about um, who are what are your favorite blogs or newsletters podcasts yeah something that you yeah. want to recommend sure so i think uh, obviously i'll start with the two kind of pieces that led me on this path so i think analytics engineering podcast and roundup you know those two that dbt labs um who who look after those two pieces uh you know obviously those are super relevant to anyone who identifies in that, as an analytics engineer and i still do that's kind of like my trade you know even though i now run it i'm a founder uh it's still my trade as an analytics engineer i think that's you know a fundamentally important thing to engage with is you know especially given that they look after the the main tool we use hmm. um but then i think ben ben stancil's substack was a quick second one that i that i've started following after that after joining data twitter you know and that that was the that was a really interesting one because it had so many things in there like uh the missing analytics executive for example that's such a such a key post that ben made that i've quoted so many times and that you know that's you know ben also inspired a whole bunch of new people to start their subsets including myself and i think so those two are probably my my favorite probably all-time substacks and posts and mm. podcasts but i think there's a there's been a whole bunch of there's there's some new new um new ones like sarah krasnick's one i really enjoy it's always really thoughtfully written um uh stephen bailey's like he's got some quite I, i quite i don't mind when people go kind of go take on on like a go on a random walk on their on <laughs> in their podcast and yeah. it's quite metaphorical you know i sometimes i think what did i joke on twitter recently with like one of ben's posts you're about 75 metaphor <laughs> <laughs> Could you go to 100 and we'd still know you're talking about data? <laughs> that's true. Adolfa, she's got a really good one as well. Uh, it's got that's quite nice because it's it also covers a lot of what's been written in the last week, and then you can figure out oh, yeah. new things to read. Yeah, yeah, that's another good one. Yeah, from from Atlan, right? Yeah, and uh, I really like Mikael. Mikael's one's not so often. Mikael Denso of um, yeah, he works at Monzo and has been in Google as well. But his ones are, he's always got quite nice data included in his, in, in his um, blog posts, which are really interesting, like stats. And yeah, I, I really enjoy that when that comes out as well. Yeah, I no, I can, I can just like second all of these. I maybe just a couple of more that I can think of. And I guess I would also, I would have probably started with Ben Stencil's uh, subset. Yeah. It's definitely a super, super inspiring. Um, and um But uh, yeah, what I also like from podcasts, I mentioned before the, the one from Steph at AVO. Um, she doesn't release very often, I believe, but the, the couple of episodes that I've listened to, I've really enjoyed a lot the conversation. I think there was one with Boris Jabez from, from Census um, uh, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, which I really enjoyed a lot. Um, and as well, uh, one that I've been a longtime listener of is the Analytics Power Hour, which kind of lives a little bit out of the, let's say, DBT world. I haven't heard of it actually. Yeah, yeah. Check it out. Analytics Power Hour. It's uh, 
Mo, Tim, and Michael. <laughs> it's a trio of, of uh, hosts, and they always have an additional guest on. So that kind of gives always kind of a, a funny, interesting conversational style to the podcast. And they talk about yeah typical challenges of uh, that you, that you face in analytics. So definitely uh, a big favorite of mine. And in terms of Substack, I really, really uh, like Emily Thompson's Substack. Yeah, she, that's another one I really like as she well. She writes about data leadership, leading uh, analytics teams, hiring, yeah. like a lot of the challenges that you face as, as an analytics leader, which I yeah I really appreciate her her content a lot. Yeah, there's so many. I was just looking at what, what I've got in my Substack app and there's, <laughs> there's, there's like 25 or so. <laughs> So yeah. many subjects, yeah, and I agree with you. Probably a lot inspired by by Ben. <laughs> I, I also really like the data engineering podcast. It's much more like infra focused yeah. than say on analytics focused, but it, that's quite interesting to learn about new tools. Yeah, it's often focused on on specific tools, which which can be super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and you've got people kind of that crossover between there and into the analytics engineering podcast, like, True. Uh, like Kevin, uh, who's Kevin, who founder of uh, Metaplane, who's been on both, and they were kind of different angles on looking at, like looking at the same sort of content. Last question about uh, so you're on you're on data Twitter, analytics Twitter. There's, is there a difference data Twitter, analytics I think, Twitter? I don't think there's a difference between data Twitter and analytics Twitter. I think it's the same. But I think there is a subgenre here, which is the data shitposting, uh, which um, I think <laughs> there, there are a couple of people that I can think of. Um, but yeah. like controversial question, do you have a favorite uh, data shitposter? <laughs> uh, so I, I, I think I've got like probably like Pedram, Taylor yeah. Hathaway, uh, Josh Wells. They're like the three like... The, yeah, the I would add Seth Rosen also. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 I wouldn't pick a favorite, but I really, I really love these, uh, these posts a lot. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, David. Thanks so much. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. We're we're coming to the end here. Thanks for for joining me on this show. Um, I hope you also enjoyed it. I hope that uh, some of the listeners found some interesting insights here, and um, yeah. Uh, let's let's keep in touch. Yeah, I'd love to. And it's been great being on the being on the podcast. Thank you for listening to Analytics Anonymous. If you like the show, please tell your friends and coworkers about it. And don't forget to subscribe. Also, I always appreciate feedback. Every comment or review helps me to improve the show in the future. Feel free to reach out to me directly via email or social media. Take care. Until next time.